Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Please welcome Al Mazels and welcome back Matt Seitz. Nice to see so many people. <laughs> I'm sure uh, Paul Brennan would uh, enjoy being here. He passed away some years ago, though. First, I wondered if you could just talk about the the origins of this of this movie and oh, yeah. and how long how long did it take to shoot? How much contact did you have with these guys before oh, yeah. you started oh, yeah. rolling and so forth? Um, 1967, I guess it was. Uh, my brother and I made a, a film for PBS, a film of Truman Capote, at a time when he was uh, about to publish his uh, book in Cold Blood. And in fact, that, that film, along with a film of Muhammad Ali and a film of Marlon Brando, they're all coming out in, in a couple of months on, on Criterion. But I mentioned the Capote book because... Uh, he claimed it to be a non-fiction novel. And at that time, there wasn't a non-fiction feature film. We wanted it to be the first. And Salesman was the first. Um, my brother had lunch one day with Truman's uh, editor, Joe Fox, at Random House, and uh, asked Joe Fox what would be a, a suitable subject that would uh, meet with some success uh, as a documentary feature. And he said, what about door-to-door -door salesmen? And uh, both my brother and I had done some of that stuff ourselves. I, I sold fuller brushes in high school and I, when I got out of college for as long as I could stand it, which was two or three weeks, <laughs> I sold Encyclopedia Americana. And my, my brother sold... Uh, uh, Avon products. So we knew, we knew that there was a great potential in, uh, in telling something about America. And we sent out somebody to research the kinds of stuff that was being sold door to door. And uh, in that research, which took several months, the researcher found that there was a company in Chicago actually selling the Bible. But uh, but as a as an item with a beautiful leather binding and lots of color photographs, and somehow the salesman who represents a guy who was a rugged individualist, because when he knocks on that door, it's all up to him as to whether he's going to succeed or fail. And the Bible being such so much a uh, an item in our culture, right? But but interestingly enough, sold as a product, right? And then, of course, the woman who's uh, going to be the uh, additional subject of the film, The Housewife. So you had all the makings of something that would tell us a lot about America. And in fact, when the film came out, Norman Mailer said something to the effect that it's one of the few films that tells so much uh, about America. 
Uh, now the other question. Oh, actually, just to follow up on that, could you talk a little bit about the distinction between journalism and a nonfiction novel, and also oh. between a documentary and a nonfiction feature? Because that's something that I touched oh. on in my opening remarks, and I was sort of just shooting in the dark. I didn't know if I was I right about that or not. But well, actually, the the, the distinction between what my brother and I have been doing uh, all these years and what I continue to do. Um, there's a distinction between what we do and what documentary filmmakers normally do and what journalists do. And that is, we get very, very, very close to what's actually going on. There's no narration. Uh, there's no host. Uh, there's no... Uh, music that is added to it to give it some sort of a punch. That moment at the beginning of Salesman when that little girl goes over the piano and knocks out that tune, Beethoven couldn't have done any better. Uh, and and, and my, one of my pet peeves is that television is practically devoid of anything very profound. They don't... The, the journalism... The journalism is somebody telling you what happened and uh, to the neglect of giving the, the viewer the opportunity of actually being there. When you saw this film just now, you, you must have felt what Paul was going through. You, you really, for that time, that hour and a half, you were in a, almost, almost, almost Paul himself. And, and you felt every one of those scenes you felt that you were present, what was going on. Journalism, I think, should do that, but doesn't. And most documentaries uh, are something else. Most documentaries uh, also, and this is another peeve of mine, uh, they, they come about because somebody is trying to represent his or her own opinion. Uh, salesmen, to, from, from my point of view, is that much greater because there's no point of view behind it. It simply puts you there. And uh, I, I, that notion of not point of view uh, came to me so forcefully when somebody uh, gave a lecture on Shakespeare and ended his talk by saying, the great thing about Shakespeare was he didn't have a point of view. Very few documentaries are made that way, but they are all the more likely to achieve a greatness by discarding point of view, discarding the Michael Moore sort of approach, and coming up with a, an approach where you accept people as they are, and you're determined to be that much more authentic, that much more truthful, that much more able to put in the hands of the viewer the material from which they may want to make a judgment, but material which is not a prejudgment for them. There's a, but there's a distinction, though, to be made, isn't there, between approaching something, approaching a subject with a preconceived notion or trying to fit things into a little slot as you're editing it and um, trying to go beyond simply reporting because I think yeah. there are several sections in this movie where you where, where you and your collaborators did try to go beyond simply standing there and observing what's happening and, and the example that jumped out at me right away is when 
Paul is on the train and uh, the, the sales meeting in Chicago, and you cut between the guys standing up and talking about how much money they're going to make and Paul looking out that window, obviously worried about the meeting, which right. we see him at. Right. And it's like he's worrying about the meeting that he is about to be at, uh, and, and this is suggesting an interior emotional state through editing. So this is not, you know, I mean, so can you kind of parse That's, the I'm, distinction there? I'm glad you pointed that out because it was a kind of departure yeah. from, from our normal way of doing things. Uh, so I guess people are entitled to break their own rules. <laughs> well, and how do you how do you decide uh, when to break those rules? And and you know they 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 are the reason they jump out at me is because for the most part you do have an almost kind of monk like attitude about about how you observe these people and how you record these people. But um, there's another example where Paul is driving. I believe it's in the Boston section. There's a couple of scenes where he's driving where. Uh, you hear music playing on the radio, and you jump forward in time. And there's actually one cut, I think it's the second time, where you go from day to night, and the song is playing continuously. This guy is dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just curious. (laughs) Again, another another departure. Right, right. Uh, But there's one more time, too. There's one more. <laughs> Let me think. It's, uh, is there, are you talking about both the times when Paul is driving, or is there when another he's time? Driving. Yeah, yeah. He's driving um, in Florida. Right. And he's well, this land is your land? Yeah, that he, but well, he's talking about the other guys. Yeah. And he was put up to that. When you saw... But don't uh, tell anybody. When you saw... <laughs> When you saw Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets and you saw how he... I didn't he, see it. You didn't no, see it? No, I He introduced... This has become a cliche now, but when they introduce the characters and they have the name of the guy and their nickname oh. on the screen, it was, had this been done before Salesman? Yeah, uh, before his film, yeah. No, but I mean, had that been done prior to Salesman, that, that uh, oh. identifying the people... I don't know. Next to a close-up. I don't know. know. This this movie contributed so many cliches that you didn't even know were cliches because you invented them. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Can you talk about the technology uh, that that made this sort of filming possible, and how did it differ from the way documentaries were made before the late 50s and early 60s? In 1955, I was 28 years old, and I had been uh, working in a mental hospital, headed up a research project at Massachusetts General Hospital. I had already put in three years of teaching at Boston University, and I decided, uh, true to my nature of being an adventurer, that I would go to Russia, Soviet Union. And uh, so I thought, well, if I could get in, um, I certainly can get a tourist visa. That shouldn't be difficult. But uh, I'd like to get into mental hospitals and make a film. And, 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 and I did. Uh, but uh, before leaving, I thought, well, okay, what an opportunity. I've got to do this thing. I've got to get into those mental hospitals. But if I'm, if I'm lucky enough to get in, I'm not a writer. Uh, I was pretty good with a still camera. Uh, I went to Life magazine, and I said, look, I'm going to get into mental hospitals. I'm a psychologist. They believed me. But but they but they weren't giving me any advance money. They said when when I come back, they'd like to look at the photographs. And then as I was walking through through the city, I noticed signed CBS. Edward Amaro worked there. I thought so. I went in and I asked to see Mr. Amaro, and he uh, was on vacation. So they referred me to the uh, head of the news department. Anyway, I ended up with a very simple wind-up camera with a. a uh, 
a roll of film that lasts only three three minutes. So I was really handicapped technically, 16 millimeter. So it was good enough for for television. And off I went, and I crashed a party two days after I arrived. Met the top Soviet leaders, and one of them, who was probably more curious about me than I about him, uh, because very few Americans were in Russia at that time. He, he uh, came back to me with the phone number. He said, "Call this number, you're all set." And so that was my first film. But it was made with this very primitive uh, kind of camera, enough so that you, you you saw visually what was going on, and that was very important for me to be able to depict ordinary. Uh, Russians. I thought that we needed to do that in order, well, in order to prevent uh, a war. Uh, and and I, I, it'd be so much, so hard for me to think that we would have gotten into Iraq if we had visual impressions, documentary films, uh, uh, behind the scenes of, of, of actual family life. Uh, that's what we need. We don't have enough of that in America. We've got all these reality shows, but my God, is that is that real family? I no. hope not. I hope not. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice just to to sit in on a, with a camera um, and, and film uh, uh, a family that that represents something uh, that we can envy? You know, where people are really successful as human beings. There's very little humanity in our television. Uh, uh, the perfect example of, of non-humanity is the television commercial. Uh, so for some reason or other, they don't want any humanity in that. They, let's keep that out. Let's keep the automobile running around mountainsides through, through mud and slush. <laughs> well, but they're, they're, trying to, they're trying to sell stuff that would, that would be antithetical to make you want to buy things, right? The, I, think, uh, I think they're wrong about that. Yeah. Uh, again, going back to my experience in Russia, uh, 1955, when I arrived there, uh, I knew that most Americans would have thought, well, okay, this guy's he's a very uh, idealistic guy, good luck to him, but he's not going to be able to get to meet uh, ordinary people. And so I met another American who had been uh, in, in Moscow several days before me, and we talked about what kind of access I might have in meeting people. And he said, well, you know, I had a date last night. I said, oh, yeah? He said, yeah. I went to the flower shop. I bought myself a bouquet of flowers. And he said, as you may know, the escalator goes way down into the subway, maybe 300 feet below the street level. And as I was going down the escalator, this very attractive woman was coming toward me, and I, I threw her the bouquet of flowers. <laughs> And, and she grabbed them, and we both went our ways. Perfect commercial <laughs> for 1-800 flowers. <laughs> the, 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 uh, the word of mouth would be fantastic. People would, would, would smile with glee and, and uh, rush out to the flower shop and get the bouquet of flowers. The intimacy that you were able to capture in this movie and other films that you've done, uh, that was only possible because of the type of equipment that you not only were using, but that you had a hand in creating, right? Yes. You and Robert Drew and your brother and right. Ricky Leacock and Pennebaker and all yeah. those guys, right? But even more important than that, uh, my wife is a family therapist, and I read a, uh, an essay that she wrote 
on relationships between the therapist and patient. And she said two things should take place. One is the therapist should have the gaze. And, and so when I meet somebody, I, I learned that from the way I look at that person, they gain trust right away. And there's, there's that trust which is continued, uh, as she put it, by empathizing with that person. So I really, I really like people. And, and they, they pick up on that. And, and so I'm able to, to uh, establish a rapport with them that's so important. People sometimes have described what I do as a uh, fly in the wall. Nothing could be more incorrect than that. A camera on the wall picks up nothing because there's no intelligence or sensibility behind it. And you need, you need that kind of rapport for the camera and you to be right, right there and mobile to get, to move around and to get exactly close to what's going on. Are there any, over time, are there any lessons that you learn that teach you where to be with your camera, uh, whether you're on a person who's speaking or the person who's listening? Uh, or is it just a gut feeling? I think I have that. Right. I had that right from the start. Um, but I, I've moved to Harlem now, and, and I have my studio up there, and, and uh, we have a 75-seat movie theater that we're developing so that people in that community can see uh, good films of value and interest to them. But, uh, but also, uh, we're starting a program where we're teaching the local kids how to use uh, video cameras. And uh, I just discovered that there's a high-definition camera that uh, Canon has just come out with, and it's only $1,000, and you can hold it in the palm of your hand. It, it's going to revolutionize opportunities for us to know one another. You've been uh, very much on the forefront of this well of technological change in movie making for 40, going on 50 years now. Right. Um, and I remember about, I guess it was maybe four or five years ago, I came to interview you for an article for the Star-Ledger in your offices in Manhattan. And the first thing you did was you handed me this photocopied manifesto on, uh, I don't remember what the title of it was, but it was a manifesto for, I guess, documentary filmmaking in the new, in video, in, in the, area of, the era of video. Uh, and, oh, yes. uh, and 30, 30 points, I think. That's right? what it was, yeah. 30 and reasons why I've switched from film to, uh, to video. And you were just, you were evangelical about that, and that really blew my mind. Yeah. Um, and you, there was also a poster on the wall, uh, Kodak celebrates, it was the 100th anniversary of the creation of motion pictures, and they had little thumbnail sketches of, one, of 100 great cinematographers, and one of them was you. Right. And I think they asked the cinematographers to take their own photos. And you said, uh, come over here, I want to show you something. And you were so excited, and you said, look at mine, tell me what you notice. And I said, I don't know, it was really tiny. And you said, it's the only one on the poster that's out of focus. <laughs> you were so excited. And you, talked, and you talked about how you said picture isn't everything, and that f filmmakers and cinematographers don't like that to get out. But it's true. Can you, can you talk about that and, well, and one film the, and video yeah, and that whole idea? One of the most brilliant uh, documentary filmmakers is uh, Jonas Mikas. And his stuff, he can't hold the camera steady. He's out, he's out of focus most of the time. But my God, what poetry. What a touch with life. What a, what a, what a connection you make with what's going on. Uh, of course, ideally, you, you, you'd like to have somebody with... Uh, uh, the professional capabilities of uh, 
of holding the camera steady and 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 uh, composing the shot, all that stuff, but but without without the uh, psychology that goes along with the poetry. Well, Orson Welles put it very well when he he said that uh, the eye of the cameraman must be the eye behind the lens of I have a poet, and uh, Corn, uh, what's a uh, Kappa, the great still photographer, when asked to give advice uh, to a new photographer, he said, "Get close, get close," and and I think those are two elements that are so very important that uh, are oftentimes neglected. So obviously, it's you know, inter you want the the skill with the equipment and the sensibility to be on the same level, but if they're not. Better, better have the sensibility. Yeah. yeah. You know, these two words, professional and amateur. What does amateur mean? For the love of it. For the love of it, if you don't have that, from my point of view, forget it. What do you think about uh, YouTube? And uh, uh, have you gone on YouTube? Well, yeah, I got a little bit out. angry because they've been showing my stuff without paying for it. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess... I guess it uh, sells more for my DVDs, so it's okay. What are you working on next? Uh, good question. There are uh, four or five projects that are uh, in the works that I can think of. There are probably another four or five that don't come to mind immediately. But the, the big project that I've been wanting to do for a long time, and if there's anybody here with the money for it, please come forth after this. <laughs> Uh, it, it, uh, it's about trains, but more importantly, it's about people I meet on trains. I had this experience, uh, well, maybe 20 years ago when I had this idea for the train film, which I'm now calling uh, In Transit. I had this idea of finding somebody on a long-distance train, in this case going across this country, finding somebody where there's a story about to take place when they get off the train. And I would film that story, and the film would be half a dozen such stories shot in different parts of the world. Well, the first experience that I had in actually filming somebody on a train for this film, I, I was, the train was leaving the Pittsburgh station on its way east as I was going across the country. And as I walked through the train, I saw this woman joined by her child. And she looked kind of nervous. Something's going on. So I asked if I could join her. And at that time, I had this big camera on my shoulder and a sound person with me with a microphone in his hand. And I said, if it's okay, would, would you mind I'm making a movie of people? She said, oh, that's okay. And I started filming. Right away, she told me why she was on the train. When she was three years old, her parents broke up in an ugly divorce, and her father got custodianship over her, vowing that her mother would never see her again. She was on the train because the night before she got on the train, she got a call from a woman in Philadelphia saying, I'm your mother, get on the next train. So when she got off the train, I'm still filming, and she looks around, and nobody's there. As she goes, she's going up the stairs, there's a woman at the top of the stairs that op opens her arms, rushes down, they embrace, and I film the whole encounter. Well, that's just one of half a dozen uh, uh, stories that will make up that uh, film. I'll tell you of, a, of another film that I'm making too. Uh, as we all know, there's been such a, a growth of anti-Semitism 
and, and it's not only Mel Gibson's uh, film. There's a there's a <laughs> there's a film that the Hezbollah has made. Uh, the New York Times talks about the Hezbollah, but one thing they don't point out, uh, having pointed out how they're against uh, Zionism and Israel, the New York Times doesn't point out that the Hezbollah is also anti-Semitic, viciously so. And they've made a film, and in the film, which is transmitted on satellite television so anybody can see it, there's a scene where they have uh, put forth an enactment of a Jewish-looking guy killing a child and taking the blood to mix it with matzahs to celebrate Passover, totally without any basis in fact. And yet, this piece of, piece of mythology has been going on now for 800 years. Martin Luther, the Mr. Nice Guy, who, who uh, formed the, the Protestant movement uh, and... Uh, maybe did a lot of good stuff along that way, was, became, uh, as he got older, more and more anti-Semitic because he couldn't convert enough Jews to Christianity. And so he fell for this myth and saw to it that two Jews were executed on these false charges. And it's been going, there are probably three or 400 Jews over the period of the last 800 years who have been uh, executed uh, on, this, on this kind of frame. Well, one of the most famous cases, uh, famous at its time, uh, in 1913, a man by the name of Mendel Bayless was, was brought to trial in Kiev in the Ukraine on these false charges, and everything was hoaxed. The Tsar uh, uh, at that time was extremely anti-Semitic, uh, uh, and uh, the police were, were, were uh, uh, framed, all this stuff. Uh, so that uh, everything looked as though he was going to be found guilty. The last moment, the, uh, the one, one of the members of the jury uh, stands up and says, I can't find this man uh, guilty. He's totally innocent, and he holds up a Christian icon, and he convinces five others in the jury uh, that the guy's innocent. And, uh, uh, and so um, he, his life is saved. Well... That's only part of the, uh, the story, but um, I've, I've done a lot of research. I have the transcript of the trial. Uh, I'll have to do some things that are a little bit unorthodox for myself because I'm going back into history. But I was able to find uh, a woman, 95 years old, in the Bronx, who is Mendel Bayless' daughter. And I was able to find two women, one in her late 80s and another one in her late 90s, sisters whose uncle was one of Ben Nobelis's uh, defense attorneys, and I've been, f I've been filming them. So that's, that's another project. Uh, the uh, Scorsese project is <clears throat> simply uh, filming the, um, uh, the concert, and he had 17 35-millimeter cameras there and invited me to come along with a little handheld uh, video camera and to, to shoot whatever I saw uh, fitting. It's, it's, a different, it's a different sort of a film. Um, because it's a film of the Rolling Stones, he's going to go through uh, many, many hours of uh, film material from, from my own film, uh, Gimme Shelter, a film that, material that didn't go into the, to that film, which, some of which might go into, into, his, into his own. You know... When we made the film of the Beatles, I don't know that we could have done any better even with the equipment that we have now 
because we were so determined to do it just right, and so determined, even though even though we had this big camera and, and it ran only ten minutes of film before you had to change magazines and all that, you know, somehow we, we managed to get it. And the same thing with salesmen. I don't know uh, with uh, video equipment whether we could have gotten any more that would have tell, told the story any better. We were so, we were, if we had to shoot it in 35 millimeter, I think we still would have gotten it somehow or other. But, but uh, just the, recently I sat in on a conversation that three, three and a half year old kids were having uh, at breakfast time. And I sat there with my little video camera. I didn't have to use a light. Uh, uh, the, the little cassette in the camera ran for a whole hour, so I didn't have to stop to reload at any time. I didn't miss a thing. And uh, um, it's just a beautiful seven-minute uh, seven uh, piece. And I intend to um, <clears throat> sit in on other little partnerships of kids that age. Uh, you know, a three-year-old, a four-year-old, a five-year-old kid, precocious kid with a, with a friend who's also precocious, any of you who've had kids, you, you know the kind of stuff that <laughs> uh, that comes that comes out of the mouths of these babes. And uh, I hope to make a whole film of uh, of these little partnerships. What what got me thinking that 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 there'd be some wonderful stuff that way was not only my experience in filming the three and a half year old kids at breakfast, but before that, I met a woman who told me about a, a, a friend of hers who has two kids. Uh, one of them only two and a half, and the other one even younger, only two months old. And she overheard the two and a half year old child talking to the two month old child, saying, "What's it like in heaven? I think I forgot." <laughs> <laughs> well, if you can get that kind of stuff, and I, I think we can get that, and maybe even better, we'll have a wonderful film. The only problem is, the only problem is, no matter how good that film. <clears throat> if I brought it to CNN, ABC, CBS, any one of those outfits, it wouldn't get shown. Actually, if you could cut in footage of Anderson Cooper shedding a tear as he listens, <laughs> I think it would be we, we were open from the beginning. That, uh, the film might be equally of all four of them. Uh, it might be of uh, Charlie the, the Gipper. Uh, it was only once we got uh, much into the filming that we could see that uh, it was really Paul where, where most of the story uh, uh, was. Interesting, I, when we finished the film, we couldn't get it uh, shown in movie theaters, although that was what we wanted to do. So we rented a movie theater, and in that process, we had screenings raising money for the rental. And, uh, well, to, uh, as people filed out one day uh, from the screening, there was one person left in the theater, and she got up. I could see that she'd been crying because of Paul. And uh, as she got closer, I saw how attractive she was, and I elbowed my brother. I said, she's for me. That's how I met my wife. <laughs> okay. Uh, last one, I'm told. The question is, how did I introduce myself to these people who, of course, are total strangers uh, at the door? Right. Uh, Either Paul or my brother and I would, would uh, in a very few words, say that we're making a film of this gentleman and uh, of his fellow workers, 
as they uh, enter people's homes. And uh, we'd like to continue if it's okay. And 90% of the time, people said okay. Um, so we really didn't have a problem. Well, I th <laughs> Actually, that 10% usually was made up of people who women who still had their hair in curlers or something, you know, <laughs> you, know, you know. But as you remember, there was a woman with the hair in curlers, too. But by, by the way, um, many of you know that uh, Grey Gardens has been made also into a uh, musical, and, uh, and, and Salesman is being made into a play. Not a musical, but a play. Well, I wouldn't want to make the musical myself. I don't have that. I don't have any anything like that kind of uh, talent. Uh, uh, so, uh, but the people who made the musical not only have the talent, but they also invited me to uh, in the making process, and uh, they invited me to criticize. And I did make a few criticisms. One, one criticism that I found uh, important to make was that uh, in the earlier, earliest versions, they had Mrs. Beale uh, responsible for everything that went wrong in that relationship, and I thought that was not fair. Uh, uh, and, and so they've, they've corrected that, and I think it's a, they've done a very, a very good job. There was a young woman um, who came to me with a film that she made for her project as a student at Brown University, a film about Grey Gardens. And I thought it was terrible because, it, because again, she had made the mistake of, uh, of portraying Mrs. Beale so unfairly. And so she went back and, and uh, not only did she uh, change that, but she went to Grey Gardens itself and, and filmed the people who are now living there and she made a beautiful little film. It's called Ghosts of Grey Gardens. And now... There's another film that we have made of Grey Gardens. It's called uh, The Beals of Grey Gardens, and that was made from material in the original shooting, which uh, didn't get into the film, but was so good that we decided to make another film. And that one is also being distributed by uh, Criterion. All right. Well, thanks, folks, and thank you, Mr. Mazes. Thank you very much. Obviously, got a nice thing going here. Thank you. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.